I'd say, well, how could I do that? Where would I go for Ephesians 1? And in my Bible, it's right about there. It's almost to the end. And so don't go to your table of contents. I'll see it. You'll be like this, like you're in the very front. Kind of Don't do that. Just go to the skip to the back and start fishing. It's really not that big a Bible. There's not that much uh, to fish through. But it's toward the end in Paul's letters. or the shuns, G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, you have the great long sentence. And Greek scholars have said in the past that this is the longest uh, sentence in all of the Bible. Because while we've broken it into smaller English sentences, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one consistent thought that, um, that there really is no break in the thought in the original language. And so it's a big meal. And it's kind of the summary of what we've been talking about for the last year. This is my summary talk on uh, 2022 and what we've done in the teaching here in our church. And this is actually a time-honored tradition in uh, the Bible, the back-to-the-Bible sort of Bible teaching movement over the last uh, 120 years in our, in our history, uh, 140 years in American history. This back-to-the-Bible thing that started with the Niagara Bible Conferences and the Truth Magazine and James Hallbrooks and those that were like him and said the Bible is, uh, is, is the, the, the source and authority for our understanding of truth. And our summary of it is only a secondary thing. It's the Bible that is the system. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. How many times is Paul going to footnote the grace works of God with the desires and attitude and intention of God, the kindness of his great intention toward us? With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I'd love to spend the next year just unpacking the grammar and the, the, the conceptual frame of that. And I've seen it done. It took a year for one pastor to work through that. And... Um, let me, let me say what I think are the summary facets of the riches of God's grace toward us. The things that God has already done for you, believers in Christ, are the things of the blood of Christ. Redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, and the atonement. These are things that the Apostle Paul describes as the effects and benefits of the blood of Christ on your account. Redemption, the purchase from our, of our persons from the slave market of sin. Propitiation, the satisfaction of the Father. Reconciliation, that we are now, we are now united with God where before we were at enmity with him. And the atonement, that Jesus died for the sins of the world and you have received your salvation because upon faith you're redeemed. But the provision for that is that Jesus paid for all the sins of the world. You can check that out in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. These are the effects of the blood of Christ and, and under one category. Another is the work of the Spirit and the believer, the inevitable and eternal works of the Spirit and the believer, like the sealing we just read about of the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption, like regeneration or the new birth, like... Um, like uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a one-time event that is not an emotional or an ecstatic experience. And it, it, it never is portrayed that way in the Bible. It isn't our experience as we trust in Christ. It is that the Spirit of God 
unites us to the person of Jesus Christ in his past, present, and future. And what he did on the cross for us, we have died with Christ. In the burial, we've been buried with Christ. In the resurrection, we've been raised with Christ. This is the result of our union with Christ through the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that is a one-time event. We portray it with water, but it isn't the water. It is the work of the Spirit of God at the very instant of your faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that is also the instant of your regeneration. Some will say regeneration precedes saving faith, and they do it on the basis of theological reasoning without reference to the actual Scriptures. But what the Bible says is, having believed, you were then sealed. Having believed in Christ, you were then sealed made new in Christ. And this is God's way of bringing us his so great salvation. The works of the Spirit and the believer that are inevitable include his indwelling. He's come to abide in your heart forever, and you cannot lose the Holy Spirit. King David could lose the Spirit. King Saul did lose the Holy Spirit. We're in a new administration in which every believer receives the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit so that even the Corinthians, even the wicked whoremongering Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 are told they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, it isn't conditioned on our performance, on our personal experiential righteousness, on our avoidance of personal sin. The presence of the Holy Spirit is because of the work of Jesus and the grace of God toward you upon faith in Christ. And you have the Holy Spirit living in you to make your body the temple of the Spirit forever. And that's also, that goes off over into the resurrection body as well. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul calls the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5. He says in Galatians chapter 5, also walk by the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This experiential work of God the Holy Spirit in us, which we talk about constantly, is not inevitable. It is our responsibility to receive this work of the Spirit. And you can lose it. You can quench. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. But you can also regain it. And we're supposed to consistently walk in dependence upon the power supplied by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you're sinful, guess what we know for sure? You can play minesweeper, you can reason, you can think this through, you can make a deduction. If I'm sinful, if I'm walking by the flesh, then I cannot be walking by the Spirit. If I'm walking in dependence on the power of the Spirit, then I cannot be walking according to the flesh. And that's the question of each moment of our lives. Where are you? Are you carnal? Are you spiritual? Are you walking with God? Are you not? But that is all possible because of the inevitable things of the Spirit, like the sealing and baptizing and indwelling ministries of the Holy Spirit, His regeneration to make you a new creature in Christ. These are the things that God has already done for you. We've outlined them in detail. And there are a couple more categories we might talk about that are related to what the New Testament says about your new birth. But Let's suffice it to say that the application has been fairly consistent. What kind of person should I be given this truth? That whether I knew it or not, this is true of me. That God has so capitalized us, so equipped us, so blessed us by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his marvelous grace. What should be my response I should rejoice all the time because these things are always true. So Paul says in Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. When do I rejoice? All the time. In Ephesians chapter 5, I'm giving thanks to the Father at all times for all things in the name of the Son. See, I have a constant gratitude and a constant joy that's possible because I have a constant truth that God has saved me and these things are all true. These are the riches of God's grace. They should make us a grateful people. If Israel should look back to God's deliverance at the Red Sea, then we should look back to the cross and say, look at all the manifold riches that God has showered us with. And if you and I don't talk about it, it won't be on our minds. If we don't look to the scriptures and say, what has God actually said he's already done for us, then we won't know. And that's the state of Christendom. That's the state of evangelical dumb, even, is that they don't really know. Too many people are hung up wondering, am I saved? Am I not? Am I saved? Am I not? Am I saved? Am I not? I'm just not sure. I don't know if I persevered to the end because they have a bad theology of perseverance, and they think that their salvation depends on them, and they have no security, and they have no hope because they're wondering if they've really, truly, sufficiently, what, believed? Jesus said, childlike faith, let them become like little children and come to me. The problem is 
that if you don't understand what God has done for you, you don't know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, you won't have a sense of responsibility to be who God made you to be. And that's so vital that you understand your position in Christ. One uh, great uh, writer of the past, Miles Stanford, said that these identification truths, gone, neglected, and not understood, probably account for a lot of the problems people have in their spiritual lives. Today, popular Reformed Lordship teaching will say that a simple faith alone grace message of the gospel is the reason for the spiritual um, ennoy, the spiritual lethargy and the, the lack of real fruit that, people, that we see. It's because they didn't start off with a gospel of full commitment or works. But it's not right to say that. The problem is not that we don't have regenerate people. The problem is that we don't have babies eating the word of God to grow up spiritually. And they don't know who they are in Christ because no one's told them. It's so vital that you would know this, not just for your own gratitude and your joy, but for your ministry to others. When you encounter a Christian who's down, when you encounter a Christian who's having hard times, I guarantee, when you encounter me as a Christian who's down, I guarantee you our focus is not on what God has said he's done for us. And we don't have that great joy of our salvation. It isn't a lack of regeneration. It's a lack of sanctification. It's a lack of maturity. It's a lack of awareness of all that God has done for us. Just take that passage that I just read to you. Does anybody here think they fully have appraised and, and processed all that that means that God has done for you? Of course, the way I state the question, you know that I'm, I'm expecting a no. But we keep looking at it. We keep going back. We keep drawing out the treasure chest and looking in what God has done for us. And we become grateful people who have a bigger perspective. I think the picture of perspective is, are you a small person or are you expanding not in what you tolerate toward wickedness, but in your understanding of who God is and what he's said about you. Because the smaller our perspective, the greater are our troubles, and they dominate our perspective. The troubles don't shrink. The troubles don't go away. We grow. We become capable of managing this. One of the great illustrations my pastor used to give us, he called the testing that you get as a young Christian the charge of the mosquito. The charge of the mosquito is the idea that if you're on a safari and there are dangerous animals like elephants, uh, angry bull elephants that have smelled you and want to come kill you, or cape buffaloes that want to kill you and then stomp a mud hole into your dead carcass, um, that, that these are dangerous animals. But so often what comes at us and we get overwhelmed by is just the little charge of the mosquito. And we get overwhelmed because we have a, a test that's right where we are. It's, it's right. I can barely do two push-ups. So God says, okay, two push-ups, go. But as you do, as you grow, as you get stronger and stronger, that, the, the challenges get harder. Some of you are going through some of the hardest challenges you've been through in life. And I would say, as it should be, not because you're not walking with God, but because as you walk with him, he's saying, you can carry this and you need to trust me through it. Some of you feel like you're Joseph in prison. Hey, be faithful. Trust in your God and be in his word. You're in a free country where you can actually do that. It's going to be very challenging for us to walk like that when the, when the word of God is no longer available, as it is in some parts of the world today. Well, we, the application is gratitude and joy. And that's what I want for you. I want you to be rejoicing people. I want you to have the joy of your so great salvation and not flounder around and say, well, you know, pastor talked about a bunch of stuff and, and I know it was important. We took notes and we learned some things. This is real life. If I told you that God has done all this for you and you've believed it, if you listened, I didn't tell you, Paul told you. If we believe what Paul and John and James and Peter have said about what God has done for us, if we believe that in the moment, what should that do for our sense of who we are? I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm talking about reality. I'm talking about actually humility. What does God say about you and your destiny? Good theology knows who God is, who we are, and what he said he would do with us. All right. We did the riches of divine grace for the entirety of 2022. We also looked in detail at Isaiah verse by verse on Wednesday nights. We're calling it the prophets of doom and deliverance, which is a summary of Isaiah. And we're in right now, almost to the midpoint, we're in the little apocalypse of Isaiah chapters 24 
through 27, which is a summary in a poetic form of the coming tribulation and second advent of Christ. And it's glorious, and it's going to be magnificent, but it's going to, work to get there, it's going to be very dark and challenging. And that tribulation period outlined in Revelation chapters 6 through 19 is described poetically largely in Isaiah chapter 24, and that's why they call it Little Apocalypse. We are headed toward um, the, the fun part of Isaiah, but to get there, you have to go through all the wrath and judgment discussions where God brings deliverance through overwhelming firepower on those to whom, uh, against whom he's opposed, or I should say those who are opposed to him. Another thing we did this year was we had the internship of John Miles where he worked through the book of Jude verse by verse. So I don't know if you'd ever done this in a church before, if you ever taught through Jude this way, but I believe you were doing original exegetical, doing your own translation work. And uh, he took uh, quite a bit of time for how long this little uh, epistle of Jude is because we wanted to really juice it. He pu- pulled out a lot of archaeology and historical context and literary context, and um, it was a marvelous study. And it was actually one of the most difficult. Some of the things in Jude, some of the challenges of the book of Jude, are some of the most difficult things. And given um, the friendship that we've developed and my understanding of John's training and, and his specialization in. Uh, in Jewish studies over the years with the people at Moody Bible Institute, which has a phenomenal Jewish studies department, I thought this would be a really great uh, challenge for him. And I couldn't wait to see what he did with the book of Enoch or the quotations of the prophet Enoch. And uh, what a magnificent work he did. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a great study. And I'm, um, I'm so thankful. And John is here um, on loan right now, kind of, from Tennessee, because as he continues his seminary job with his, uh, with his company, they've moved him to throw an extra wrinkle of challenge in his life uh, down to Tennessee. And they're headed that way. If you don't already know this, most of you do. They're headed down there probably end of the month. And um, we're allowing a, a temporary sojourn away from Preston City Bible Church. But we do require a uh, return within a couple of years or something uh, like that or whatever the Lord does, really. Um, so, John, come on up. We're gonna, we, we planned a fun thing for everybody today. We're going to do a little Q&A with John about theology. And, uh, I just, and this is meant to kind of recap what we talked about a little bit with the Jewish studies material. But also, there's some theology that, um, that we, I think we should sharpen up a little bit on. And um, what did you call it? Disjunctive theology, the, the, the great displacement. displacement theology. Replacement theology says that Israel has been replaced by the church. And it, come on up. And it, and it suggests that um, God is done with Israel and now we're the new Israel. The church is Israel. And so um, we're ardently against that and we constantly uh, teach against that. John's been digging in this and doing research in this stuff. And. Um, um, how far along would you say you are on your THM? You've, you're, you're really cranking through, aren't I you? I am right at halfway. Are you on? Is your mic on? Yeah, I think so. Everybody hear John? On? Okay. Do y'all hear West Virginia? A little bit. John is from West Virginia. His, parent, his father's side, I believe, is Sephardic Jewish. Yeah, half of them are. Yeah. Okay. He discovered that in the middle of his Jewish studies program at Moody. He's doing all this work and, and learning specifically about... Um, about Israelology, basically, as I guess we'd summarize it. And in the middle of that time, somebody, your grandma, who told you? Oh, my aunt. She let the cat out of the bag. Your what? My aunt. Your aunt? Aunt. Aunt. Aunt, come on. Hey, okay. The you silent. <laughs> <laughs> she let the cat out of the bag at the funeral, at one of the funerals of the okay. grandparents. So. That, that, that there was Jewish. And then, and then who, who confirmed it? Oh, she did. Okay, just they, they knew the whole time. It's just my, uh, my grandfather's mom was uh, Jewish, and uh, he was a World War II veteran, so they, they, kept it, um, they kept it under wraps after the war, which a lot of people up here did, too. Yeah. You had people that, people my age that their grandparents had a tattoo on their arm, and they, they never knew it, right? They, they left the old world behind, came to America, and never told the world that they were an American society. They were Jewish, right? Because... Uh, of what they had seen for being Jewish in Europe. So that kind of permeated the World War II generation quite a bit. Unless you lived in a tight community like Brooklyn, like Borough Park, that area where, you know, it's, it's, it's acceptable to be religiously Jewish. Um, there were a lot of people from Germany, Poland, Austria. Um, my own family was Switzerland uh, that came over and, uh, and kept it under wraps. And so that gets uncovered a lot. 
Yeah. Do y'all know that uh, Preston Trading Post was founded by a survivor of the Holocaust? Uh, I don't know if everybody knows that. Mr. Bieber founded, uh, and his son now is the, is the owner, operator of Preston Trading Post. Um, they were 22, I think, when in 39, uh, the man and his wife. And uh, they lost two children while they were in hiding, two little children, um, because of their travails uh, being in eastern Poland during uh, World War II. And, but they survived. They never were taken. Uh, he ended up fighting in partisan warfare toward the end. But that's right down the street from us. And uh, that man came, came back, came to America after the war and uh, built the present trading post and sells stoves. And that's Mr. Bieber. And I have great rapport with him, um, great conversations about worldview and stuff. But anyway, okay. Um, so I asked John a couple of questions that I wanted to Q&A with him about and kind of go back and forth with. Um, and the first one is a big theological summary question that we have in our theology. In Galatians chapter 6, verse, uh, is it 16? Mm-hmm. It says, uh, uh, the Israel of God. Um, and people have taken the Israel of God to mean the church. And some of the great commentaries will summarize that way and say, oh, that, we're the new Israel, and they'll use that as a proof text. And we absolutely categorically deny that. We don't believe that Israel has been replaced by the church. But we do believe the church is one new man composed of believing Jews and believing Gentiles in one new organization called Ecclesia or the church. And so I wanted to ask John a, a very easy, a low-hanging curveball kind of question. And he's going to, this, this isn't on the screen yet. You're going to have to um, show what you want sure. um, with the little, this little button right here. Yeah. But the question is, and he had these questions in advance, Why do dispensationalists say rightly that there is a, quote, distinction between Israel and the church? What do we mean by that? Oh, wow. So you get, um, so there's there's an ongoing joke in rabbinic thought that, um, you know what you get when you get two Jews sitting together in conversation? Someone said it, three opinions. That's right, yeah. So you get two Jews, three opinions, right? So one of the biggest... Debates, even for the past, since the Babylonian exile, to be honest, when Israel lost their unity and they weren't living in the land together, uh, Assyria and Babylon uh, bringing them into modern-day Iraq and the Persian Empire, this has been an ongoing debate as to who is a Jew. And there's all kinds of uh, jokes about it. It, uh, Jewish people love to use humor. For, uh, they use uh, almost like a dark humor as a coping mechanism. It's a lot like Irish humor. If you've heard Irish jokes, they're the, really similar, right? Talking about your hardships in the form of comedy. And so, um, you know, before we get into uh, basically to talk about the distinction between Israel and the church, and not separation, but distinction, you have to get into who is a Jew, right? Who is Israel? Um, because the number one thing that replacement theologians do throw this up, up here. Yet, yeah. yeah. Um, the number one thing they do is what? Try to appropriate Israel for themselves. Right? Something pertaining to Israel is always appropriated for themselves. And so uh, this has been an ongoing issue within nominal Christianity, right? Of, of what Dave just said, the church replacing Israel. Um, Jews follow Judaism, so they try to define a Jewish person on religious grounds, that you follow rabbinic Judaism or Judaism. Uh, that's not always true, right? Um, there are atheistic Jewish people, right? But do they apply to the biblical covenant? Yes, right? We're going to look at that. Uh, the church and the church in replacement theology is Gentiles receive Israel's blessing. And why do I say Gentiles? It's because if you're Jewish, you have to deny your circumcision in a replacement theology church to join the church. They're the only group of people on the planet that have to deny their ethnicity to join the church, right? And so historically, John Chrysostom, he was one of the first people in the second century to campaign this, um, demanding that Jewish people deny their circumcision. They're no longer identified with Israel as a people. Uh, Israel became this abstract theological entity that the church absorbed, the blessings, but if you did not embrace Jesus as Israel, you remained cursed. So the church took Israel's blessings but left the curses upon the Jewish people. And that is a theological background behind, if you grew up in the the Roman Catholic Church, that is a theological background behind the hierarchical sacerdotal sacramental system of Rome, 
Because the sacerdotal, what's sacerdotalism? The priesthood, right? right? One of the confessions of Rome is that priesthood replaced the Levitical priesthood, replaced Levi, right? Replaced the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, Levi is illegitimate. And if you don't embrace Christ, you're cursed perpetually. Well, now, if you don't embrace Christ, you are perpetually cursed, but not because, right? I mean, we do. But not for riots so, and murder. So, right, no, no, <laughs> not to be cursed by God's people. Yeah. Uh, this is really important that you get this. When we say there's a dis- distinction between Israel and the church, part of what we're saying is there, was, uh, there are different administrations of God's works through history. That's very important, right? The, the, that's, that's part of the thing is that God's dealing with Israel under, the, under that administration. He's dealing with the church today, which is Jew and Gentile, one new man. Mm-hmm. But there's another thing you have to understand. We stand together in this church to say there has never been but one way of receiving eternal life or relationship with God. And it's only been ever by faith, never by keeping the law, never by doing any works. It's always been by grace through faith. And we will go further than some and say in the promise of the coming Redeemer, the the messianic promise, the messianic hope is the focus, I would say, do you agree, of the entire Old Testament. It's what it's all pointing to. So they were looking forward to Messiah in faith. We're looking back on his coming and his work on the cross in faith. But it's always been that same person and the same work. Um, uh, and, and our role is faith. And so I just want to make that clear that when we were, we were making these distinctions, we're not saying that is distinct. So was, yeah. go ahead, John. So the biggest thing with this is, uh, with the replacement theology, is they liken Jewish circumcision to Gentile circumcision. They are different. They're actually mentioned in two different parts of the Scripture. Okay? Mm-hmm. So some of the other arguments that you may have heard is Christians are not Jews. You become a Christian. You're no longer a Jew. Rabbis say this. The one thing you can't believe in, the one thing you're not allowed to believe in in rabbinic Judaism, guess what it is? You can't believe in Jesus. Now, why do they say that? They have a theological basis for that, but then also the brunt of the anti-Semitism that Jewish people have received for the past 1,700 years, actually, yeah, 1,700 years, 1,800 years, have been from nominal Christians. It's a reality, right? They asked Pope Pius to excommunicate Adolf Hitler. He refused to do it, and he had struck a treaty with the Nazis, and he maintained that treaty as Pope up through the 50s, and so he never absolved that treaty. Yeah, exactly. So this is a permeating thing that if you ask someone that grew up in a synagogue and went to Hebrew school, they get this history. And so there's a double, twofold reason why they wouldn't want to believe in Jesus. One, they think that Christians believe this, all Christians, right? And two, the outcropping of this ideology has resulted in terrible violence, right? And this just is, it's just a reality is that if you're trying to witness to a Jewish person, you're going to run into both of these things. Yeah, we, we talk about the Holocaust, right? Yeah. The actual list of persecutions by state and church of Israel in this age is, is a, a very, very long list. Oh, yeah. The Holocaust is one of a series. Yeah. Going back to the Crusades we, and Crusades, Spanish everything. Inquisition. Yeah. Um, and this is all done, has all been done with the cross on our chest in the name supposedly of the Jewish Messiah. Um, and this is, this is what we're saying. We, we denounce this wholeheartedly, this anti-Semitism that is underlying historically the replacement theology. Correct. So one of the things that we have to define is different destiny for people who turn into Christians. And this has drifted into dispensational thought, but thank goodness it's getting pushed out. There's not a different destiny. We see that, that we will be in the kingdom. The apostles rule the 12 tribes of Israel. They come back with Christ, right? So that's a good, that's a really good point historically. I've been reading a lot about um, this in my PhD studies. And what did the, what did our grandfathers and great grandfathers in the faith do? One of the big early marks of dispensational thought was that, and I was reading about Brooks with this last night, that, that there is a heavenly future for the church, but there is an earthly future for Israel and that the earth is the place of the land of promise. And these are earthly blessings, but the church is given uh, all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies and the theory. And these are true th- statements and in God's administration with Abraham and in, and in, under the law, there was earthly blessing, but that's coming back and it's an eternal earthly kingdom of the new heavens and new earth. That's what we're headed toward with Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior, ruling there. And so the, what they did was they, they put the church somehow in heaven during the millennial kingdom and Israel on the earth. 
and said that that distinction that we see in this age and the age before, that distinction continues forever so that Israel is in heaven or on earth and the church is in heaven. And the problem with that is if you believe in 1 Thessalonians 4, when Jesus joins the entire church together for the first time in its history where we're all assembled together in the clouds to meet him, so shall we what? Ever be with the Lord Jesus. And where will he be in the kingdom? On earth, on David's throne, ruling from Mount Zion. This is why I say what we're doing in this age, I summarize, we're, we're recruiting those who will rule with Christ in his coming kingdom over Israel, over the nations. See, I think the, the, I think the bride of Christ mm-hmm. in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is the church, the body of Christ. I'm sold out to the notion that the body and bride of Christ is the church. And what does the bride do next to the king? What is the bride's role? To be with him, mm-hmm. to be doing what he's doing. And so to distinguish, to separate the church out of the coming kingdom of Christ, first thousand years we call the millennium, and then the new heavens and new earth, it, it doesn't work. Then they tried, and I, you know, Darby and these other guys did this heavenly earthly distinction, but it doesn't really work. Um, we're going to be where Jesus is, doing what he's doing, and that's what we're being trained for right now. All right, sorry to interrupt. No, no worries. The biggest thing with that too, Dave, is that if you turn into a Christian and join the church, what, where does a Jewish believer sit? In that mindset, have they abandoned the nation in order to go back into the church? Sure, they have to go up to heaven with the church, right? They're no longer tied to the nation of Israel whatsoever, which goes against Ezekiel 37, right? Is that when the dry bones become alive again, it says, I will raise you up out of your graves. It does not distinguish between a believing Jew of the old time and a believing Jew of the new time. Right, he says, I'm, right. Look, Israel, I'm going to raise, if you're dead, I'm raising you up and you're going to be here for this new temple thing, right? So one of the things we didn't mention that we need to say, you're going to get into the covenants in a little bit yeah. if, we, if we have time. It's only, oh boy. You can't, people will spiritualize the promises God gave Abraham and say that these are our blessings and it just means believers and Abraham's the church and they try to do that and that's what covenant theology does. The problem with that is the repeated promises regarding the land. You can spiritualize blessings. You say spirit, blessings are spiritual and there are spiritual blessings in the Abrahamic covenant. You can, you can talk about the, 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 we're the spiritual seed of Abraham, Paul says. Mm-hmm. We're his kids after the faith because we followed his pattern of faith in Genesis 15, 6. But you can't spiritualize the geographic promise of the land forever. You can't turn this into uh, uh, our heart is the land or something. It doesn't work. The land is the, the, it's the, it's the thing that the monkey wrench in the gears of that system. And so you have to let it be. If you read the Bible in a plain sense that there is this forever promise of Abraham's kids living in this promised land, not just in the early conquest, Mm -hmm. but forever in the second advent. All right. I'll jump through the... Do you guys want to hear the jokes? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. So around Jewish identity, right? They uh, obviously with Orthodox Judaism, big thing is keeping the mitzvot, keeping the commandments, right? And that is what you... Whether you believe in God or not, that is your cultural identity. And they make jokes around this. So this is one... Two rabbis argued late into the night about the existence of God. Using strong arguments from the scriptures, ended up indisputably disproving his existence. The next day, one rabbi was surprised to see the other walking into the synagogue for morning services. I thought we had agreed there was no God, he said. Yeah, but what does that have to do with it? (laughs) So, observance whether you believe or not, right? And so it becomes a... This is Christendom, too. This is just religious people. Correct. So... Uh, this one is, did anyone go to confirmation as a kid? Did you grow up in, the, in a liturgical church, Roman Catholic? Okay, here we go. You'll get this one. Two rabbis were discussing their problems with squirrels in their synagogue attic. One rabbi said, we simply called an exterminator and we never saw the squirrels again. The other rabbi said, we just gave the squirrels a bar mitzvah and we never saw them again. <laughs> so at 13, you're done. You've reached your point of identity you can go on your merry way. You may come back to shul. You may not, right? Hey, that happens in the Baptist church too. (laughs) So what does that mean for Jewish identity, right? And so what do the rabbis say? These are some, I want to show you some areas of what is considered 
Israel, even to the nation of Israel today, because it's not just rabbinic Jews. So follow me here, okay? So this is the rabbinic Judaism, okay, and what they consider Jewish. And I want you to see that it is not cut and dry, okay? And, but there is one consistency all throughout, and you're going to see it. So how, how many people have heard you're Jewish if you have a Jewish mother, right? A lot of people have said that, right? Except, because this is the rabbis, there's always how many opinions when there's two together? Three, right? So people born to a Jewish mother, except the people born with Levitical or priestly parents. So if you're of the tribe of Levi, because they know their tribe, uh, they, they didn't lose their tribe uh, identification. They, they know what tribe they're from, unlike uh, most Jewish people after the temple was destroyed. And they can trace it through their, they're allowed to trace it through their dad, because they know their tribe. So if, you're, if you have friends, it's Levy, Levitz, John Levitz, the comedian. He's from the tribe of Levi, Levy. Eugene Levy. Eugene Levy. Cohen, anyone with the last name Cohen? Is, Cohen means priest, priest in Hebrew, so they're a descendant of Aaron. Shapiro is one of the, so Ben Shapiro, if you guys, Daily Wire, Ben is Shapiro. Oh, a little bit. Oh, okay. Just a tad. So he, wear, he wears the hat. Where's cats? So, cats is priest. In Russian. Oh, it's Ruski. Okay. And so that is Cohen. In, uh, in Geller, Gelman means one who blesses. So they're also from the, uh, from the line of Aaron. But they're allowed to chase, trace all these through their dad. So which side is it, the mother or the father? Well, it depends, right? And, so, <laughs> <laughs> and there's one extra surname, Disraeli, which is an Aramaic surname, like preposition of, of oh, or Israel, from yeah. in Aramaic. And these are Jews that never left the land of Israel when the Romans kicked everybody out. So they stayed in the land, and they have always traced their lineage primarily through their fathers. And they're like this small group of like maybe 500 people that Israel leaves alone, and they trace patrilineally like the Bible. And so they go back and forth, right? Wait, like the what? Like the Bible. Oh, the Bible. That thing. Oh, this is not the Bible. This is what the rabbis are saying. This is what the rabbis are saying. So these are their exceptions, right? All oral law. Right, but they still circumcise on the eighth day, so you still have a bris. If you guys have seen the episode of Seinfeld with the bris, where Kramer tries to steal the baby, you John, know. They, they haven't seen that. They haven't seen that. Okay. <laughs> are they are, are Jews in, under this area Torah observant? Maybe, mostly oral laws. Do they keep kosher? Maybe depends on if you're Reform or Orthodox. Do they believe in God? Maybe. <laughs> Number one taboo. What do you not do? Don't believe. Don't believe in Jesus. So this is what the rabbis say makes for a Jew of the various possible. So they've got to have some sort of star chamber in every case to check someone out. Correct. All right. The Karaites is another Jewish community that broke away in the 600s. And they they don't believe in oral law. They believe in just reading the Old Testament. Okay, so they're a scripturalist group. And Karaite comes from like Mikra, like the, script, the scriptures. So that's very different from rabbinic. They've got their whole, all their multiple traditions, Mishnah and, and all that stuff. And the Karaites are closer to what we are because they're like, no, just, just what the prophets gave us. They're what we would call the Old Testament, right? That, Correct. So now they're Correct. Not, they don't believe like we believe. No, they don't. At all. But they're clo- it's a different sect than the traditional various strains of rabbinic Judaism. Correct. And they, they, they're about 50,000, and they live in Israel as well. They have a big synagogue down on the coast. And there's a sect of Christianity that's being heavily influenced by these people. Yes. Yeah, they and are. they're, don't watch YouTube. Don't, it's yeah. not helpful. Yeah, don't YouTube it. Um, so these are people born to a Jewish father. Those of you at Schaefer, if you're looking at the Leningrad Codex, like the Biblia Hebraica, and we that are. was preserved by Karaites. So the Ben Asher family wrote it down, but it was handed off to Karaite families, and they kept track of it. So the last guy that had it in Leningrad was a Karaite Jew, and then he handed it over to the museum. Uh, he bought it in Egypt and took it with him up there. So the Karaites really preserved the Masoretic text as we have it because they're so devoted to that text and not the Talmud and the Mishnah. That's secondary. Uh, what's, what's interesting about them is as they read the Old Testament alone without the rabbinic influence, guess what happened to a bunch of them? They started believing in Jesus. <laughs> so they ended up making a smaller oral law around the number one taboo, right? But they believe people born to a Jewish father, so they went back to the biblical standard. But what else do they do? Circumcise on the eighth day, right? Ethiopian Jews, a lot of people don't know these people exist. There's a, a, a show on Netflix called Red Sea Dive Resort, and it's about how um, Israel, Israel as a country saved the Ethiopian Jewish community in the 80s. Hmm. They are, you know, the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. She supposedly took 
Supposedly Solomon got her pregnant, and her heir was Solomon's son. And he brought a contingent of uh, Israelites down in the, in the seven and eight hundreds, much later, under his kingdom. And there was a, another Judaism that started there, but they continued to circumcise their kids, just like Israel did. They still were practicing sacrifices up until the 1980s. They had Levites that were doing sacrifices. They still did flint knife circumcisions like Abraham. And so they were like straight up old school well, that's biblical. biblical Judaism, right? And so uh, when Israel saved them, Su- Sudanese Muslims were trying to kill them. And so Israel flew them out on planes. They pulled the seats out of planes and flew thousands over to Israel. There's still like 20,000 left in, in Ethiopia. But they've been there for about 2,700 years. So who do we know shared the gospel with, a, with an Ethiopian Jew? Philip. Philip, right? Philip to what? Philip the, to what? The deacon. Yeah, Continue. Deacon Philip, right? And so we know he wasn't a Gentile because the first Gentile is in Acts 10 with Cornelius. It's Acts 8, which means that that Ethiopian eunuch was probably part of this community that had been there because the first Gentiles later. Now, John, I'm right? going to have to rewrite some of my sermons now if, if he's not a Gentile. <laughs> and so, uh, but tied to the kingdom. <laughs> Ruh, <Ruh-ruh>, raggy. Um, <laughs> But do they believe in God? They typically do. And they've been mostly brought into Israel. Some have embraced rabbinic Judaism. Ethiopic uh, Christianity has impacted our textual work because yes. they've had copies of the Bible. That's, that's part of our study. And um, we just don't really know our history that well sometimes. Last group. Who also shared the gospel with these people? Philip, right? <laughs> Same guy in Acts. So they, the Samaritan community, born to Samaritans, uh, they trace it through their fathers, circumcision on the eighth day. You see, the, you see the consistency between all of these? What do they constantly do? Circumcise on the eighth day for their sons, and you have a Jewish parent on mother, father, or either or. The debate is either or, right? It goes back and forth. This is really important. What do you think it is? Either or. Either or. And we'll see that. Right. Because we know in the Bible it's primarily through the father, Right? The father's the one that performs it. Who was born of a woman and still was circumcised in the temple on the eighth day? Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> right? yeah. And so he is an exception. The Messiah is an exception to this. To the father, to the patrilineal. To, to the patrilineal, thing, yeah. right? Is that if you're from Jacob on either side. So man, we do eligible. believe Jesus is, a, is actually of Israel. Correct. Yes, okay. And so there's about 700 Samaritans left alive today. They still exist. Most of them have become Israeli citizens. They circumcise on the eighth day. They do know their tribes. They're one of the few people that do. Asher, Manasseh, Ephraim are still alive, and there's some Kohens. Now, they, now have you seen the sacrifices they'll do for Passover? That yeah. You can, yeah. You can YouTube this, the Samaritan sacrifices, a bunch of guys in white. Uh, almost looks like butcher outfits, but they're, but they're yeah. ceremonial robes uh, with flat ended knives that are just like long razor blades yep. that they're going around um, and it's this huge mess which it would have been um, in the days of the sacrifices in Israel and they're still sa- Samaritan sacrifice. Yep. And their high priest trace, traces his bloodline back like 56 generations or something crazy. So all of this has to, they, they combine with this, you, you see one con- thing of continuity, you see the circumcision on the eighth day, right? Then they go back and forth as to, like Samaritans, they don't worship in Jerusalem. They supposedly rebelled against King David. This is part of that northern kingdom branch off, mm-hmm. right? But all of them continue to do this one thing. And it, you can really see God's providence in this of maintaining who are the descendants of Jacob, right? And we'll see that in just a second. Now, one thing that Dave asked about was the 613 commandment. Okay, so John did a paper on this in seminary and blew the doors off of one of the things that we always say. And he needs to write a journal article or possibly a PhD dissertation on this. You'll find all of our fathers and grandfathers that have written on theology, and they'll say the Mosaic Law is the 613 commands of the, of, of the Torah. If you count all the commands up, you get to 613. Do you know that I never counted? I read books where people said it's 613. Well, John uh, has also read those books, and he's like, well, where'd they get that? So he didn't go counting. He went and started doing research. And so share what you got out of your work on this. Right. So 613 is actually a mythical number. 
It's a what? But it's a mythical number. Mythical number. Yeah, it's it's a, not the number. Yeah, it's a, a numerology number. But circumcision is one of the mitzvahs in this, and that has since gone into rabbinic Judaism as one of the many things that a Jewish person has to do. They don't have this. Even though I differentiated circumcision on the eighth day from all these groups, when you get into the rabbinic community, it's just one of the many things you do. Okay? But this 613, when we start talking about what is the covenant and what is Torah, like the book of Moses, you have to break these out and not really not embrace this idea at all because um, both of these guys, these guys were contemporaries of each other. And Rabbi both, Simlai? Yep, okay. Simlai and, and then Rabbi Hamnuna. Hamnuna. And I'll both in Israel, that. both loved to debate Christians in the third century. That was one of their big things is debate the Christians because they had a lot of Jewish people becoming Christians even and believers in, even into this time. But they loved to debate like Gentile Christian bishops. They loved to do that. And so Why are you, you looking at me? So, anyway, hello, Gentile. <laughs> um, but you can see where he pulled 613 from, right? 365 prohibitions, which is the days of a Roman year. So you can see this is not even the Hebrew calendar. This is a Roman calendar. So they're living under Roman rule, right? 248 positive mitzvot. Commands. Which, like which a, are the, yeah. Yeah, mitzvot, yeah, commandments, which are the bones of the body. You have 248 bones in your body. Is that right? And according to them, it is was. Is there a doctor... 248 bones? Anyway, that's so, their number. That was their, their number in the 3rd century. I don't want to know how they found that out. All right. So no, no evidence of them actually counting, right? Yes. They just came up with this. Now, Hamnun is very interesting because he does the same thing, but he takes the numerical value of the word Torah, T, Te, Vav, Resh, He, okay, Tav of Torah, and the numbers of that equal 611, and then he adds two more commandments to get at the same thing. So to get to 613, which was prior... Uh, he says, so you've got, I'm Adonai, your God. That's the number 12, 612. Yep. And you have no other gods before me is 613. So, okay, we get to the right number, 613. So when do you get a list? Not until 600 years later. So the chief rabbis of Babylon took this and started making up lists. And then Rambam, Maimonides of the 12th century in Spain, he's the authoritative list that if you see some Christian commentaries, they refer to his list. That list is 1,200 years after Jesus, 2,600 years after Moses. So John Miles reads unpointed uh, Talmud and Mishnah texts for entertaining just for his own, own, own diversion. I've seen him do it. I watch him. We were hanging out, and I'm like, what are you, what are you doing on your phone? He's like, I'm just reading, reading Mishnah. Now, maybe he's trying to show off, but I think he's really just a nerd. <laughs> One of the problems with our studies of Judaica has always been um, anachronism. Something will be going on in the 14th century AD, and it'll be a practice that rabbis write about or something, mm-hmm. and that will be backtraced, and they'll say, well, that was what's going on in the story of Jesus and, and, and his birth or something. And that's always been a problem from well-meaning scholars like Alfred Edersheim. And so John is somebody that is carefully reading and auditing some of these things, and a lot of this discussion that you're seeing here is anachronism. Like, we're, we, our list came from trying to match it to the mystical thing they're doing in the third century, which is a big mistake. And another thing I want to point out, he'll tell me some rabbi said something, and I'm like, I don't know who that is. I've studied it, I've read it, it just doesn't take, but, you know, I don't remember playing geometry so well either. But Rabbi Moses Ben Maimon is the guy's name. Now, these people are so elegant and efficient in their summaries, the guy's nickname, and everybody uses it, is Rambam. From Rabbi Moses Ben Maimon, they got Rambam out of that. And everyone that studies this stuff knows who that is. You ever seen a chess person that can tell you rook, rook to knight four or something, and they know all the numbers on the board and they're just chess nerds? Don't raise your hands. I, I looked into learning that and I chose not to. I'm just saying, um, but this is, this is the kind of hard work that has to be done to be able to assess a lot of the claims that your Jewish uh, biblical scholar superstars are putting out there, like, uh, what's the guy's name, uh, Jonathan Kahn. He's got to be right because he's Jewish when he writes stuff that is not correct interpretation, for example, of Isaiah 9. And, um, and John is developing his skills, and this is why I believe in a growing number of uh, professors and leaders at Schaefer Seminary, we think John is the future of the Hebrew Studies Department at, uh, at Schaefer Seminary, and I want you all to pray for that, because, because he's, he's, don't tell him I said this, but he's wicked smart. 
And, uh, and he's got so much um, understanding in this from, from this is, he's just made for this kind of study. So, okay, I don't want to... No worries. Okay. So the rabbi that I quote with him is Rabbi Ken Smith. And so, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Smith. Sometimes his name is Mike Adams. You know, I just... Stop it. <laughs> so you see a lot of oral stuff developing around what would actually be written in the Bible, Right? This, it's this kind of idea, okay? Rabbi, is one permitted to ride in an airplane on Shabbat, on the Sabbath? Rabbi responds, yes, as long as your seatbelt remains fastened. Now, this is degree of separation from what's written in the Bible, right? As long as your seatbelt remains fastened, in this case, it's considered you're not riding, you're wearing the plane. So you put the plane on. So that's the kind of oral stuff that this comes out of, and we sometimes think that the Orthodox community is like reading... The, the Torah, apart from what happens on, on Shabbat service, but what they're studying throughout the week is this oral stuff, right? But they liken their Jewish identity with this, and that's, that's a problem when you get back to the Bible, okay? So you have this. Uh, I love this one. A Reformed rabbi, so you could put pastor and Easter in this too. A Reformed rabbi was so compulsive of a golfer that once on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, holiest day of the year, right? He left the house early, went for a quick nine holes by himself. An angel who happened to be looking on immediately notified his superiors <laughs> that a grievous sin was being committed. On the sixth hole, because you're supposed to stay home fast, not do anything. On the sixth hole, God caused a mighty wind to take the ball directly from the tee right into the cup. Miraculous shot, hole in one. The angel was horrified. A hole in one, he exclaimed. You call this punishment, Lord? God answered with a smile, yeah, but who can he tell? <laughs> you could hear it too. Yeah, but who can he tell? You know. So, I asked you one question, John. I said, what is, why do we say there's a distinction between Israel and the church? And we're talking about wearing airplanes, right? not telling about holes in one. So with the rabbinic community, they try to wed Abraham with Sinai. Yes. Right? Yeah, it's they all, try to wed it. Who else does that? Everybody. Replacement theologians. Theological summarizers <laughs> that don't look at the details of the text. Reform theology does this. Correct. It's all jammed together. Sinai, well, you know, Abrahamic covenant, that's a covenant. Yeah. So looking through this really quick, Exodus 34, what does God say in his word right here is the sign or the testimony of the Sinai covenant? Hmm. I've got it highlighted. Words of the covenant and the Ten Commandments, right? The two tablets of stone. Okay, after that, he says everything else is statutes and, and, uh, and judgments that he makes, right? But this is the symbol of that old covenant, okay? Is circumcision mentioned here? No. No, okay. Where is circumcision mentioned? It's mentioned centuries earlier yeah. in Genesis 17. You see that? So if this is the covenant given, and when you read Paul, you've got to get this, because Paul says this in Galatians 3. Mm -hmm. He talks about this covenant independent of this. When he defines what he's talking about when he says the law, the law, the law, he says the law came 430 years later in Galatians 3. What's he talking about? 430 years after who? Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mm -hmm. right? So this was given in 1446 B.C. So if you add... 430 years, you got 1876 B.C., right? Abraham's born in 2166 B.C. Who does this also entail, according to Paul and Galatians? Isaac and Jacob, right? The sons of Israel. So who is a Jew? Now, this is the most important part because as a Christian, you have to get this to understand the distinction between Israel and the church, okay? You have to get this. I will establish my covenant, so he appears to Abram, between me and you, I'll multiply you exceedingly. So he's promising Abraham to do what? You're going to have a lot of kids. Okay? Abraham fell on his face. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. That's goyim. That's the same word we use for Gentiles. Goyim. So you'll be the father. You'll also be the father of the multitude of goyim. You'll be called Abraham as a result of that. You see this? I made you a father of the multitude of nations. So more than one. Okay? But I will expand you and multiply you. This is really important because he says right here, he jumps between generations and singular seed. 
and a lot of English translations miss this. I'll establish my covenant between me and you, your seed, and the generations after, okay? And I will give you, um, for, for in a covenant of eternity, it literally says Brit Olam, covenant of eternity. Sometimes it says eternal covenant, everlasting covenant. These are two nouns. Mm-hmm. And so it's covenant of eternity, Olam. And so Olam typically means the heavenly place where God is. And it gives this idea that back in Olam, back in the day, because in Psalms it says, from Olam to Olam you are God, from eternity to eternity. And God says, I'm going to keep doing things unto eternity. What do we expect to happen in the end times? Eventually, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new, heaven, new, new earth. earth yeah. You will be dwelling in Olam with God. Right. right? So it's a noun. It's not an adjective. Mm-hmm. And so he's giving not only, not only is he giving a covenant unto eternity, what's he also giving them as a land? A possession unto what? Eternity. Of eternity. A possession of Olam. Right, so this, if you don't get this, you will never, you'll, you'll always struggle with the distinction between Israel and the, even believing Israel in the church versus believing Gentiles, right? Because there's, there's a place for believing Gentiles too. So you should keep this. Now, this is the most important part. Go to verse 11. You'll be circumcised in the, sorry to get graphic, you'll be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it will be a sign or an ot. Okay, that's the Hebrew word, ot. Of the covenant between me and you. When was the last time oath was used with an eternal covenant? To tell you how eternal this is. Genesis 9, God says, what will be a sign that I'll never wipe humanity out again with a flood? Mm -hmm. How long does that rainbow last? Unto eternity, right? Every time I look upon the rainbow, I'll remind myself not to kill all of you in this way again, right? This is a sign that lasts unto how long? Unto Olam, right? It'll be a sign for the Jewish people. All the different Jewish groups I mentioned, including Samaritans, what do all of them do? Circumcise on the eighth day. Do you think they're looking at the Bible when they do that? Or do you think there's somebody preserving the people of Israel supernaturally over time, even though they hate each other sometimes? (laughs) Jews and Samaritans don't get along. What do both of them keep doing? They keep, they keep circumcising their kids, right? Boy, the rabbinic guys would be upset with you for calling those uh, Samaritans Jews. They would. And the nation of Israel has actually acknowledged them now as being part of the house of Jacob so they can get oh. citizenship now, okay. which is awesome. Um, but the rabbis don't like that. Oh, no, the chief rabbinic doesn't like that at all. <laughs> That's the, the, secular... the chief rabbinic's okay with it as long as you convert to rabbinic Judaism uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, and, and literally get this done again, um, however that works. Um, so why is that the sign of the mul- multiplying? This is a really graphic question, but what, what happens it's for... how you make babies. And it, it makes the chances of getting pregnant go up. That's the best way I can describe it. So from the male side, men, the chances of you getting your wife pregnant more often... Post-circumcision happens. What happens when you're having a lot of babies and you're trying to build a nation? You, uh, it gets fat, big and fast quick, right? Right, right? You expand the nation quickly. Have you ever seen a lot of Orthodox families that have eight or ten kids? They believe this is a mitzvah to do, a commandment, as a result of what happens to the boy on his eighth day when you become a man. What are you expected to do? Have children. Why? Because God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a big nation. Right? So you're expected to have children. Does this mean that Gentiles have, at this point have to join this nation? No. At this point, there's a nation no. of one. Right. Right? There, it, it's expected for them to, to uh, build the nation by themselves, him and Sarah. Genetically, yes. And so... So there's no, there's no coming in Genesis into this community through circumcision, but God does it later in the Mosaic Law. Correct. So right. where does God say Gentiles have to be circumcised, right, when Paul says 430 years later at Passover. This is the first time you hear about a stranger wandering in in order to keep Passover. What do they have to do? Join the nation of Israel. Is this covenant supposed to last forever? No. No, right? And so it's for a time that this is supposed to happen. You join the nation of Israel. Can I summarize real quick? Israel, Abraham's kids, are supposed to circumcise from Genesis 17 forever. 
In the Mosaic Law, that was also codified within the statutes and decrees, or whatever, the statutes mm -hmm. in, of the law, but also to become part of that nation that began at Sinai, the, the formal state that had a constitution called the Ten Commandments. To, to, for Gentiles to become part of that, like Uriah the Hittite, they would have to be circumcised. There is no, in other words, eternal covenant of Gentile circumcision, but it is a right. Jewish covenant. And he's drawing that distinction. So we're kind of talking about the theology of the Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant. Mm -hmm. and, and so don't anybody at all misunderstand. We have correctly read Galatians that Gentiles do not do this for uh, uh, faith purposes, for any religious purposes. That's a thing about your physician and your health and stuff. Right. Hygiene. So, and from here forward, the only time you hear about circumcision of Israel Actually, it's never mentioned in the covenant, right. the Sinai covenant. It's only the mother and what she has to do after giving birth on when she has, she's able to come see her boy at his breast. But this, but this is discussed outside the giving of this, right? This is part of the law of Moses, right? Now, the reason I put that there, let's go back to Acts 15. You're going to have to put a pin in Acts 15. We'll continue next All time. right. So Acts 15 what are the Pharisees coming at the believers about here in the church? According to what? The custom of Moses. The custom of Moses. Where, why did they have grounds to say that? What were Christians doing? They're trying to join Israel nationally. Well, and right here, what were they keeping as a feast? Uh, the Passover. When we keep communion... What are you keeping? A piece of what? The Passover. The Passover. Yeah. What did the rabbis or these Pharisees come in and say? You're eating part of the Passover? Well, pff, you're going to have to do this. This is what started the debate of the Council of Jerusalem. Mm. Is they said, well, until we sort out the Sinai Covenant, these guys have some legs. Let's get Paul and Barnabas in here because there's Gentiles coming to faith without this. And Peter even says so. Let's get everybody in. Let's talk about this. Because this is what defines Israel in the church now, right? And where Gentiles sit within the church as well. By not having to join the nation of Israel. Something has to change, right? Is this supposed to change? No. It lasts forever. This is never, sorry, this is never listed as being forever. So the big question with Jerusalem is what? Has Sinai ended? Has the Sinai Covenant ended? And that's, if, if you get that about the council, you'll understand Paul's letter of Galatians way better. Because his big debate is, has Sinai ended? Wait, well, has it? Yes, Correct. it has. Correct. We've read Galatians and Hebrews. That is the old covenant. Correct. It has it's been, old and it's done. It's run its course. And so, um, yeah, that's the big question that they're going to have on this. And we can follow up on this. But this is, I hope you guys get this, that this law of Moses, this is, this is not talking about Abraham. What is this talking about? They've been keeping communion. At this point, it's 50 AD. So they've been keeping communion for almost 17 years and celebrating Passover with right. their Jewish friends. Pharisees show up and go, hold on a minute. Right. That makes there's sense. A, there's a mitzvah here that's yeah. getting broken unless this covenant's over. Let's talk this through. Absolutely. So the question is, it's not what do you do with the Jews in the church? What's the question of, of uh, Jerusalem council? What do we do with all the Gentiles? Because they're coming to faith on their own, and they have a spirit, they have gifts that are coming through that show they have the blessing that we have as Jews. Something's changing. I need 45 seconds on that slide real quick. Go for it. You do it. Oh, this guy. So this is what they're trying to establish, right? And James's speech of a people for his name and the remnant of Adam sitting in between all the other nations and this nation of Israel. There's supposed to be a remnant of Israel. And all of a sudden, what starts showing up at Acts 15 that they have to acknowledge? Remnants of the other nations, right? A believing remnant of the other nations. This is the, the, the middle of the Venn diagram is what we're calling the church. Correct. It's the argument of the mystery in uh, Ephesians 3. And... It is not the cessation of being uh, a Texan, in my case. Correct. It's not the cessation of being an American or being of Israel. Um, 
And the, and the special thing about the Genesis Abrahamic covenant material, that doesn't stop. But we are one new man in Christ composed of the two, from the two. And in this age, all the remnant of Israel is in the middle of that diagram, is the church. We draw a distinction between Israel and the church. Our main use of that language is in God's purposes through the ages for, the, for his focal works on the different bodies. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I say that, he had his work for the times of Israel, and now we're in the times of the Gentiles. And there's, you've got to have the last seven years of Daniel's calendar. That's back to Israel. But there is future remnant Israel nationally, and it is over all the nations. And we, the church, are the bride of Christ in that kingdom. Mm-hmm. So um, it's complicated. And what we don't want to do theologically is be complicated, but it just is. Name me something theologically that's not complicated. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. Is he God the Father? Absolutely not. Well, how is that true? Well, that's the central confession of Christianity. Is he really a human? Yes. I don't understand. Welcome to the club, right? And so can God die? No. Did Jesus, the God-man, die for our sins at the cross? You better believe it. I mean, literally, right? This is complicated, but this is the consequence of what the Scriptures provide. God has an eternal purpose for national Israel, but it's remnant national Israel. In this age today, he's calling out the church, which is Jew and Gentile, and one new man. Now, what's interesting is the way this Venn diagram is drawn, it's a right concept except the scale the nation of Israel is a little bitty thing, and the Gentile nations are really a really huge big thing, right? But the only people who have an eternal relationship with God in the age in which we live are in the middle here because they've trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they might have called him Yehoshua, which I think is a better than Yeshua. We could talk about that next time. Uh, Jesus the Messiah of Israel, or Jesus the Christ, Yesu Christos in, um, in Greek, but it's the second person in the Trinity who came to the flesh of man to die for our sins on the cross, according to the Hebrew Scriptures, as God promised Israel. So thanks for the time today. And um, uh, I asked John four questions, and we got through uh, one quarter of the first one. You got three, you got, and, uh, you got three opinions. We're going to do a little bit more of this uh, here and there. Thank you so much, John, for being with us. Um, why don't you close us down in prayer? All right. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you bestow that we don't deserve. Lord, may we approach your judgment seat, Jesus. And when you say, what have you done? And you bring everything to count, we can only say we trusted in you. Lord, may all other works be subject to the amazing work that you did. May we receive crowns and throw them on the ground as we lay prostrate. Lord, remind us of who we are and who you intend for us to be in the future that you have. Lord, when we get to see you come out of the temple once a year in all of your glory and all the nations gather together and sing songs and eat food and celebrate. Lord, let us have a hope and a solid theology that we understand the things that are coming and all the greatness and all the good things that are intended for us as you work together all things for the good of those who love you. Ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, this concludes the services today. We were going to sing, but we're not. We're going to close it down at 1225. And um, y'all come back next time. We'll go even longer.